The reading this morning is from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26, which you will find on page 1066 in your Pew Bibles. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Zikah, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to him for his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that this place, where we must worship, is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. A prayer as we sit. Risen Lord Jesus, as you spoke to the Samaritan woman by the well and offered her living water, speak to us now from your word, we pray, and refresh our minds and our hearts for your name's sake. Amen. I was going to begin this sermon by saying, did you notice the flag flying on the church tower on any day last week? Did anyone notice a flag on the church tower? Yes? On which day was it? Thursday. On Thursday. Why was it flying on Thursday? Ascension. Because it's Ascension Day. Because Amy has helped us to think about that um, already. 
Ascension Day, when we remember how Jesus appeared for a final time on earth to his disciples 40 days after his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Ascension Day, when we remember how Jesus disappeared into a cloud that symbolized his returning to God the Father and how he promised to return at the end of human history to complete the setting up of his eternal kingdom. And how in the meantime, he is with us by his Holy Spirit, as we shall remember particularly next week on Pentecost Sunday. Those are some of the truths of the Ascension that are repeated on this Sunday in most Anglican churches in the Collect or Prayer for the Day, which goes like this, in case you were missing it. O God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. We beseech you, leave us not comfortless, but send your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to the place where our Saviour Christ is gone before, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. But what does it mean to say that Jesus is exalted as King and reigns over all when we think of the events of the past week? especially the terrorist atrocity in Manchester. And although, Manchester's, although Monday's attack was particularly shocking in its targeting of girls and young women at a concert, we know that there are murders of civilians every day in several countries in the Middle East and Northern Africa. The only one to reach our headlines this week was the killing of 28 Christian pilgrims, including women and children, on a bus in central Egypt on Friday. And apart from the evil we hear about in the news, there are also the personal tragedies that make us ask what we mean when we say that Jesus is king or that God is in control. And we could ask ourselves those questions every Sunday. But this week's news coming at Ascension Tide made me feel that I should say something about it. But I also think that our reading from John chapter 4 has a timely message for us about our attitudes, and particularly perhaps our attitudes as Christians towards Muslims. Well, we aren't singing any songs today that mention Jesus' ascension, which may be because there aren't many that have been written recently that do. Sometimes at this year we sing the traditional hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns, The Lamb Upon His Throne, but it didn't manage to sneak in under the radar this time round. <laughs> Other all-age songs, um, our all-age song, remind us that our God is a great big God. A couple of weeks ago at the family service, we sang, Jesus is the King, ruler over everything. But when modern songs refer to Jesus being King or God being in control or sovereign, it's more often in the context of our personal lives. Just think of the chorus of the song, Sovereign Over Us. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. And such songs encourage us to hang on to the truth that Paul expresses in Romans 8 and verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Or in another translation, all things work together for good to those who love God. 
But the New Testament also teaches us that Jesus is king on a wider scale. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. You better turn that there now. Ephesians 1 verse 9, when he prays that the Ephesian Christians may know Jesus' incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul goes on. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. However, Paul has already made clear a few verses earlier in that same chapter of Ephesians chapter 1, that Jesus' kingship is in the, he- in the heavenly sphere, has not yet been fully accepted on earth. Here's what he says in Ephesians 1 and verse 9. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And that time has not yet fully come, so we still pray, thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And until that time comes, there will still be those who reject God's rule in their lives, who open themselves up to all kinds of human and spiritual evil, and who commit the sort of barbarity that we've seen this last week. And that's in part because God does not force anyone to accept his rule, his kingdom. He invites us to accept his rule for our own good as well as for his glory. He longs for us to respond to his love with our own freely offered love and worship, however inadequate they may be. Jesus always made it clear that his kingdom would not be brought about by force, And his ascension only came after his crucifixion and his resurrection. The words of Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus calls us to be prepared to follow that same way of the cross, where suffering and rejection may come before vindication and restoration. He offers us the help of his Holy Spirit to follow that path, and to be transformed in attitude and character in the process. As we shall sing in the chorus of our last song today, thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Please don't think that in what I've said so far I'm claiming to have given anything like a sort of clear or complete answer to that question of how we reconcile our belief that Jesus has been exalted as king over all at Ascension Tide with the evil and pain that we see on the news or in our own daily lives. 
What I've been trying to do is to suggest how we can live with that tension in the faith that Jesus, by his Spirit, shares in it with us. I'd now like to turn to our reading from John's Gospel, chapter 4, which is on page 1066 in the Pew Bibles. Easy to remember if you like history. Page 1066. A few weeks ago, when I was preparing notes for our growth groups on this passage, I focused them on the theme of spiritual refreshment that Adrian highlighted in his choice of the title for this passage, Refreshment. You'll see it there at the top of our song sheet. You can see it in Jesus' words in verse 14 of that chapter 4. Jesus said, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus is speaking to a woman who is deeply weary. She's weary of the effort of filling water jars from a deep well and carrying them back to the town in the heat of the day. She's weary of her life with different husbands who have either died or more likely divorced her one after another. She is deeply weary and yet there is something about Jesus that makes her listen to what he says and to struggle to make sense of it. When his remarks about her lifestyle get too close for comfort, she tries to divert Jesus onto safer religious topics such as the proper site for the temple. But Jesus responds with another profound saying in verse 23. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman is so impressed both by Jesus' teaching and by his knowledge of her circumstances that she's prepared to accept his claim to be the Messiah, the one that the Samaritans, well as the Jews, were expecting. If we read the rest of the chapter, we should see how she went back to the town and told everyone there about Jesus so that they too went out to meet him and many of them came to believe in him as well. The whole encounter is a great example of how Jesus connected with people and gained their interest by meeting them where they were. He asked her for a drink from her water jar. People often feel more comfortable if we're prepared to accept their offers of help as well as offering to help ourselves. For example, the Hive Cafe builds bridges between the church and the community, not only with its customers, but in the kitchen. And because they were beside a well, Jesus didn't on this occasion talk of himself as the bread of life. Instead, he intrigued her by speaking about living water, running water, compared to the limited supplies of that well. It was an image of both physical and spiritual refreshment that showed that Jesus saw through the outward confidence of that lady to her deeper spiritual needs. We too need to be sensitive to what may be troubling people below the surface. The woman tried to divert Jesus away from personal spiritual matters by talking about external religious practices. And that can happen when we're having a conversation about things that really matter. They'll start talking about the the patterns of church services and why that one person goes up into the pulpit while everybody else doesn't and things like that because it's, it's less sort of challenging in a way to talk about the external things. 
Jesus engaged with what she said, but he gently steered the conversation back towards the real issues. The result was that the woman not only responded to Jesus' words, but wanted others to have the opportunity to do so as well, telling them about her own experience, but pointing them beyond herself to Jesus. The result was what we would long would happen when we have a chance to share something of what our faith means to us. This is what her neighbours said to the woman further on in the chapter in verse 42. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Well, that's what I was going to speak about to try to draw out from this chapter. But it leaves out a key part of the story that would have grabbed the attention of those who first read or heard John's Gospel. And that key part of the story is that woman was a Samaritan. The Samaritans lived in an area north of Jerusalem. They were descended from those <coughs> left behind in the northern kingdom of Israel when the Assyrians invaded and influential members of the population were deported. And some of those who were left behind had married people from other tribes and adopted pagan practices, or some of them mixed them in with what they'd known in the past from their Jewish background. When the Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah returned from exile in Babylon, they despised the Samaritans as the mixed-race descendants of rebels and foreigners who'd corrupted their religion. The result was the two groups tried to have nothing to do with each other. As we heard in verse 7 of John chapter 4, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, or Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. Jesus' attitude was different from that of many other Jewish religious teachers of his time. Rather than being concerned that he might be contaminated by contact with a Samaritan, he reached out to meet her deepest need. And her receptiveness to his message was greater than many of his own people. Those who heard John's gospel might have balked at the idea of learning from the example of a Samaritan, just as those who heard Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan might have had a similar reaction. It seems to me that we can compare relationships between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' time and relationships between Christians and Muslims today. And perhaps we can learn from how Jesus reached out across the barriers of his time that were racial and nationalistic as well as religious. The Jews had reason to question Samaritans' claim to have preserved the true teaching of the law of Moses whilst rejecting the rest of the Jewish scriptures such as the prophets. And Samaritan religious ceremonies included some pagan practices. So it's much more than a question of whether there could be two temples, one in Mount on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, as well as one in Jerusalem. There was more than that question that divided them. Well, Muslims claim that the Quran contains the original teaching of both Moses and Jesus, but that it's been modified later on by Jews and Christians respectively. But there are written versions of both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament from hundreds of years before the birth of Muhammad. 
Muhammad himself would have been unable to read any version of the New Testament. He relied for his knowledge of Christianity and what he learned from Christians he came across in Arabia, whose practice seems to have been mixed in with some local pagan rites. Just makes me wonder how things might have been different if he'd come across a group of Christians who were following the Bible and living it out more closely. The Quran includes a limited but distorted selection of New Testament teaching. It contradicts fundamental Christian doctrines about the nature of Jesus. It denies that he was ever crucified and also, therefore, that he rose from the dead. It's understandable that Muslims should wish to convert Christians to Islam, just as Christians should want Muslims to know the true Jesus, so long as we both try to do so only by the clarity of our words and by the persuasive example of our lives. And that's where Jesus shows us the way in his approach to the Samaritan woman. He disregarded popular hostility and social barriers. He sent his disciples off to the Samaritan town to buy their food, and he asked the Samaritan woman for a drink. Rather than beginning with their points of disagreement, Jesus began by offering her what she needed to meet her deepest longings. When she raised differences of religious practice, Jesus responded with deeper truths about God. And throughout the conversation, he showed respect and concern for her as a person, perhaps more than her fellow Samaritans did, if the fact that she was drawing water in the middle of the day points to some reason for her avoiding that of some Christian groups in previous centuries. So we should take notice of Muslim leaders who condemn recent atrocities without any reservation and support Christian leaders who are building bridges with their communities. And even as we disagree on fundamental points of belief, we can work together on what we might call as good Samaritans on practical projects. Like the Samaritan woman, we too can become weary Weary with the state of the world, as well as weary with the pressures on our personal lives. We all need the spiritual refreshment that comes from the inexhaustible supply of the Spirit to renew our hope that Jesus' kingdom of love and peace and justice will triumph and to play our part in bringing in that kingdom. A prayer as we sit. May Christ, our ascended King, pour upon us the abundance of his gifts. Send us out in the power of his spirit to live and work in his name. And finally, by his grace, bring us to reign with him in glory. Amen.